It is Thursday, which means one day closer to college football's biggest game of the year. Monday night in Indianapolis, either Georgia or Alabama will walk off the field as the top team in the nation. Alabama enters the national championship game having won their last seven against the Georgia Bulldogs. That includes the SEC title game earlier this season. The streak began in 2008, and it's the longest streak by either team in this series history, which began in 1895. Monday night's title game will be the third national championship game in which both teams are from the same conference. The first came in the 2012 BCS game when Alabama beat LSU. And in 2018, the title game when the Tide beat the Bulldogs in overtime. The final tally, 26-23. to And Alabama head coach Nick Saban comes into this game undefeated against all of his former Alabama assistants. Saban holds a 13-0 record overall, including 4-0 against Georgia head coach Kirby Smart, who served as Saban's assistant with the Tide from 2007 to 2015. Monday, we'll offer an opportunity to reverse that trend. Happy to have you with us for College Football Live over the next hour. We'll break down this game and look at the landscape across college football. A cast of characters will join us, but we start with Marty Smith, who checks in from Tuscaloosa. Good afternoon, Wendy. I spoke with Nick Saban extensively Thursday here at the University of Alabama about the challenge of facing Georgia for the second time in just more than a month. And he said it's the exact same challenge they faced last time. That's reasoning based on the fact that Georgia is a very well-coached team full of very talented players. And he reminded me that in his opinion, Georgia's front seven defensively might be the best he's seen in a very long time. But again, our conversation touched on myriad topics, one of which that I've wondered for some time now. After all of his historic success, what drives him now? I'm a sort of a perfectionist. Uh, want to see things done the right way and want to see people in the organization do things the right way, whether it's coaches, players, uh, recruiting, uh, academics, whatever part of the organization it is, we're trying to help everybody be the best version of themselves so that they have a better chance to be successful in their life. So my inability, lack of patience, whatever you want to tolerance, whatever you want to call it, to sort of make sure that people are doing that and they realize the benefits for themselves and their future, you know, helps everybody create a standard uh, in the organization that actually is what helps the organization be successful. He's the greatest coach of all time, and uh, to be able to be a part of a team that, you know, has already won a national championship and has a chance to compete for another one to go back to back, uh, I mean, it helps him out a little bit, you know, I guess uh, it helps us out for sure just to get a ring. So um, it's definitely amazing to be a part of it. It's definitely a blessing. Coach Saban's, you know, the greatest to do it, and, you know, to be able to play for him has been a tremendous honor. And, um, you know, to be able to try to help to, to add to his legacy, you know, he's been huge in my development and helping me and pushing me to be the player that I am. So if I could, you know, try to help with his, his legacy and, and push that forward as, you know, as great of a legacy as it already is, um, you know, it, it, it would be huge for me. 
Bryce Young, of course, won the Heisman Trophy, and during my conversation with Coach Saban Thursday, I asked him about Young's evolution as a player this season and what separates him from other quarterbacks. He said Bryce is unique. He's actually his own biggest critic. He's an easy guy to talk to, but because he is so critical of his own performance, it's actually my job to affirm and reinforce to him that he's doing the right things. A very special quarterback, and we'll see if he can lead the Tide to yet another national championship. Marty, thank you. Last season, Nick Saban won his seventh overall national title, breaking a tie with former Alabama head coach Bear Bryant for the most all-time in the AP poll era. With more on the team trying to stop Saban from another national title, here's Gene Wojciechowski. Spring semester doesn't start until Monday here at the University of Georgia which means that Georgia's players have spent a lot of time here at the football facility. Quarterback Stetson Bennett told me that the emphasis has been on eliminating the unforced errors that cost him in the SEC championship game against Alabama. He said when you make those errors, Alabama has a habit of turning them into points. The plan is to practice today, practice again on Friday, and then head to the Athens airport for a late afternoon flight to Indianapolis. They'll practice again on Saturday, a walkthrough at Lucas Oil Stadium on Sunday, and then Wendy off their feet and count the moments until that national championship kickoff on Monday night. Gene, thank you. We say hello now to ESPN.com senior writer Adam Rittenberg, who's got an article out now on ESPN Plus polling coaches who have faced both Alabama and Georgia, which I think is extremely interesting, Adam. And clearly Alabama is a juggernaut. There are plenty of folks who haven't figured it out. But when you talk to these coaches, what are their perceptions with regards to what the Crimson Tide weaknesses may be? Wendy, there's two areas that they look at. The first is the offensive line, which has played better as of late, and they've run the ball especially very well in the semifinal against Cincinnati. But coaches say you can attack this offensive line and that Georgia needs a more aggressive, more nuanced game plan with that great defensive front to come after Bryce Young. They were unable to sack him in the SEC title game. So coaches think this, uh, uh, this offensive line, especially up the middle, could be vulnerable. Same thing with the secondary. It's a decent Alabama secondary, but not an elite group like Georgia. They're better up front on their defense. And so Georgia, with George Pickett, back at receiver, Brock Bowers at tight end. There could be some opportunities for Stetson Bennett to attack downfield against that Alabama secondary. Well, let's talk about Stetson Bennett. When you talk about Georgia, you often talk about the quarterback. I'd be interested to hear what these coaches think of the Bulldogs quarterback. You know, the coaches really generally like Stetson Bennett. You know, one told me he was a manager, but he was an effective manager, a guy who could get the ball around, had some pretty good feet, good mobility in the pocket. One SEC defensive coordinator did say, though, he's got to avoid the critical error. He's got to check the ball down. He can't throw those interceptions that cost Georgia so much in that first game. And so if he can play under control, spread the ball out, get the ball out like he did in the semifinal against Michigan, coaches think he can have a very successful game, and they were impressed by the way he bounced back from the SEC title game to play so well in the semifinal. He definitely did, but if there is a team that could take advantage of those mistakes, it's certainly Alabama, so he'd be well served to minimize those. Adam, I'm sure you had to have asked, uh, who do these coaches believe will come out on top Monday night? 
Well, Vegas has Georgia as a slight favorite, and that doesn't surprise these coaches, Wendy. They, most of them like Georgia. They think overall talent, even on the offensive side, favors Georgia, and they expect that Georgia defense, which was historically elite all season, to be much more effective in terms of stopping Bryce Young. There were some coaches, though, that were hesitant. One told me, you can never bet really go against Nick Saban. The smart money is always on Alabama. And another defensive coordinator said the difference in the game will come down to quarterback, and that's Bryce Young, where he has the big advantage as the Heisman Trophy winner. Really interesting, Adam. Thank you. You can see Adam's entire article right now on ESPN+. Joining us now, Tom Luganville, Dusty Dvorak, and Todd McShay. And listen, every game can be won. We know that. Some uh, more difficult than others. So, Dusty, let's start with this. Uh, be, uh, step into Kirby Smart's shoes for just a moment, if you will. Uh, how do you beat this Alabama team? Well, I'll look at Todd Munkin and offensively. Look, Georgia wants to run the football, but they couldn't run the football against Alabama the first time, just 3.6 yards of carry. I look at that secondary in a corner of Alabama. I attacked them. Josh Job, questionable. You got Armour Davis, questionable as well with the hip. He exited the Cotton Bowl. And I think that you let the mailman deliver. Early down passing, get some quick game going to try to slow down that pass rush with Will Anderson that had three sacks in the first contest. And I look at this as an opportunity to really get this passing game going early and set up the run as the game goes along. And one guy I pinpoint, we're going to talk about Brock Bowers and James Cook and the matchup they create. George Pickens, look, he's only played in three games this year, but he had his best game against Alabama. He's six foot three. He's 200 pounds. Coming out of high school, one of the best, most talented receivers coming out. And I think this is an opportunity. 50-50 balls passes down the field for George Pickens to shine and show that he is a difference maker in this big matchup against this Alabama secondary. You know, Dusty, when I look at Georgia defensively and I watch them and I, and I look at the talent level and the depth, I think they got to simplify things. I, I think there was too much last time. I think sometimes you, you get into a matchup and you say, okay, town's pretty equitable. The margin of error is very narrow here. So we need to come up with a package. We need to come up with this. So we need to come up with that. You know what they need to do? Just line up and play. Play some cat coverage. Hey, you got that cat, you got that cat, you got that cat. And then when it comes to pressure... They've got to attack the right side of that offensive line, but they've got to pick their poison because they need to figure out if they're going to pressure Bryce Young defensively, do you want him to take the front door or do you want him to have to evade and get outside of the pocket and break contain? you got to force him to where you think is your best contain area. And I just think if you sit back and you just play and eliminate all the zone concepts and the tricks and things you're trying to do to get an edge, you're talented enough to just line up Challenge to these Georgia wide, excuse me, these Alabama wide receivers, and get after Bryce Young. Yeah, I look at Georgia, it's pretty simple. I think you've got to blitz more, even though they blitzed Alabama more than any other team in that SEC championship game than they have the rest of the season. But they've got to continue to do that to get pressure on Bryce Young and get hits on Bryce Young as the game progresses. And they've got to play more man-to-man coverage. The reason I say that kind of goes back to what Lugs was just saying. They, all of the big plays they gave up, it was one of two things. One, it was playing zone coverage and the miscommunication. And two, it was... 
mostly in zone coverage as well, safeties being lined up against wide receivers. I know John Mechie's not playing in this game, but I was going to throw up watching the tape, seeing Mechie lined up against the safety over and over and over again. So I think it's blitzing, using Nicobe Dean, who's one of the most underrated uh, blitzers in terms of the linebacker position in the country, get him involved in the blitz game and play man-to-man -man on the perimeter. Bryce Young doesn't throw a lot of picks, but four of the five interceptions he's thrown this year has been against man-to-man -man coverage. So attack Bryce Young and force him to beat you in man-to-man -man coverage, and that'll take away some of those miscommunications that led to a lot of big plays in the SEC championship game. Luke's obviously Alabama has been successful against Georgia once this season, but we also know it's a different game. It's also quite difficult to beat a team twice in the same season. So, Alabama, what's the blueprint this time around for beating Georgia? Well, I think from a defensive perspective, they, they've got to continue to come after uh, this Georgia offense because, surprisingly, you want to call Stetson Bennett a manager? He's actually been unbelievably effective in the vertical passing game. Explosive plays of 15, 20 yards or more. So they can't, they can't have explosive plays, and they need to create turnovers. Listen, I, I think, you know, last time around, Stetson Bennett turned over the ball. All right, Bryce Young did not. Uh, you limit explosive plays. Jamison hit him with explosive plays. You didn't have any for Georgia. And then I really believe that the kicking game could be an X factor for Alabama because they have a field position flipper in Jamison Williams as a kick return. He's averaging almost 36 yards a return. Two touchdown returns on 10 returns. So he puts the offense on a short field. I don't think Georgia in the kicking game has a counter to that with Kyrus Jackson. So that's got to be an area where if this thing is tight, and let's just say you don't get a flawless game out of Bryce Young offensively, and Stetson Bennett doesn't turn it over, what's the thing that gives Alabama the edge? It's the kicking game. Yeah, and I, I'll say this. If I'm Alabama, hey, we won the first game. I'm not going to change a whole lot of things. Obviously, I'm going to give you some different coverage looks, but I'm going to do it within the same confines of the game plan that we had last time, and that's rush four, drop seven. They pressured Stetson Bennett 34% of the time. That's 10% more than any other opponent had pressured him during the season. And that, again, that was the vast majority four-man pressure. So with seven dropping into coverage, now Nick Saban gets to get creative. He gets to show a lot of different looks, pre-snap versus post-snap, disguising a lot of coverages, and it makes it harder, obviously, to fit it into to tighter windows for Stetson Bennett. So, to me, the big key for, for Georgia to counter what they saw and, and they're presumably going to see in this game is they've got to get those wide receivers more involved. George Pickens is one of them. We talked about earlier with Dusty, but also the other receivers. In the first game, the top three wide receivers combined for seven catches and just 112 yards in that game. Jamison Williams on the other side had 184 receiving yards on his own. So they've got to get more out of the perimeter receivers going up against what I believe is the weakness for Alabama and those cornerbacks. Yeah, and how about the Alabama offense? Look, it was electric the first game. Uh, Bryce Young over 400 yards and winning the Heisman in that game. And look, you may have a problem up front of your offensive line. Eke or Owens, we don't know your status. How do you help out a, 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 a injured-prone offensive line? I'm going to tell you, screen game. I heard both of you talk about it. A lot of pressure you expect from Dan Ailey and this Georgia defense. How about some screen game? Slow that rush down. I also thought in the first game they utilized tempo very well. Try to get this Georgia defense tired. 
tired. I don't think you're going to be able to line up and just run the football on them. Screen game's got to come into play. Tempo's got to come into play. Get that Georgia defense on their heels. Get them tired. And then allow Brian Robinson and this Alabama rushing attack to attack them. That's the game plan I anticipate we see from Bill O'Brien to try to do what he did the first time and really tear apart one of the better defenses we've seen in a long, long time. Well, you're right, Dusty, and Alabama wants to play their game and force Georgia to play it, too. If Georgia can somehow slow it down and just do what they've done, they'll have better success than they did in that SEC championship game. Still to come on College Football Live, of course, both of these schools, the top two teams in the country, have enormous draft talent on the field Monday night. But we'll talk about the risers and fallers in terms of draft status through bowl season coming up. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. LSU defensive back Derek Stingley Jr. has declared for the draft. The junior appeared in just three games this season before a season-ending procedure on his left foot, which was initially injured in the summer. Stingley currently number four in Todd McShay's 2022 NFL draft rankings. Todd is back with us, and Todd... Listen, bowl season is important uh, for a lot of different reasons. These players are visible. They're playing in big games. Uh, let's talk a little bit about those who uh, we saw their draft status rise versus fall during this time. Yeah, Wendy, I'll, I'll start with Malik Willis from Liberty. You know, here's a quarterback that you don't get to see a lot on Saturdays during the college season, but he shows up after a good season, kind of up and down for Liberty, but a good season in the, the Lending Tree Bowl in Mobile, Alabama, where I, ironically, a month from now, he's going to be in front of NFL GMs, scouts, and coaches at the Senior Bowl, but he has a great performance, 231 yards passing, accounted for five touchdowns through the air and on the ground, 56-20 win over Eastern Michigan, dynamic runner. He's still a work in progress as a passer, but you see him extend plays and throw the ball down the field on the move. He's got a lot of potential. I think behind Kenny Pickett from Pittsburgh and Matt Corral from Ole Miss, he's that number three quarterback right now, potentially in the first round. After that, Brian Robinson, the running back from Alabama, he was a completely different player this year. He came back from training camp and he's he shed weight. He's showing more bursts through the hole. He's got better lateral agility and he's just, you can see that and you saw it, especially in the Cincinnati game, where there's a lot of three-man Friends, he rushed for 204 yards on 26 carries. That's 7.8 yards per carry. And he had, he's up to 1,275 rushing yards a season. In the four prior seasons, he hadn't even reached 500 rushing yards. So he is definitely rising in the running back board for the 22, uh, 2022 NFL draft. And then finally, Tay Martin, wide receiver from Oklahoma State. He began his career at Washington State, came to Oklahoma State uh, in 2020, kind of struggled with the rules, was late to some meetings. He just wasn't falling in line. But then towards the end of last season, the light clicked. He actually was named team captain coming into the year, played better and better as the season progressed, capped it off with three touchdowns against Notre Dame. So I think Martin, who was kind of in question with NFL scouts, really helped his stock, especially this past season. And I think he's going to wind up probably being somewhere in that third to fourth round range of the upcoming draft. 
Well, Todd, look, there's a lot of chapters in the book when you're when you're writing a, about a player who's going to be drafted. So you hate to point to any one performance. Having said that, there are guys who fall short. Who has not? We'll just call it like we'll be not, who hasn't helped their draft stock during this season. Yeah, if we have risers, we always want to say fallers. I get it. I'm not saying these guys are fallers. I'm saying that they had disappointing days in their bowl games. And I'll start with Aiden Hutchinson, defensive end from Michigan. And, and I put my money where my mouth is right now. And I had the recent ranking updates. And I still have Hutchinson at number one overall. But I, you, if you're banging on the table for Kayvon Thibodeau, the Oregon defensive end, is the number one pick in this draft. If you're a scout in those meetings, you're going to go, hey, watch the Georgia game and then watch the Michigan State game. Now, if you're if you're banging on the table for Aiden Hutchinson, you're going to say, all right, well, with Thibodeau, I, I, I would bang on the table saying that Utah first game and Utah second game, he disappeared as well. So Hutchinson did not have the game you expect from the number one overall pick. And yes, I get his ceilings not as high as Thibodeau, but I think you get the consistency and the, the week in, week out preparation and motor that you're looking for in a top overall pick. The other player, Matt Corral, quarterback from Ole Miss. And obviously the injury is the reason that we're, we're talking about it. I love the fact that this guy's such a competitor and loves his team so much that he wanted to be out there and play. But again, if you're a scout saying, well, I, I like Kenny Pickett from Pittsburgh more than this guy, you're going to point to the fact that mobility is a big part of his game. He's got a slight frame. And are we worried about the durability issues that he's had and the durability issues moving forward? So that's a, a question really you have to answer within your own scouting department. But Corral had a phenomenal last couple seasons and, and let Ole Miss to the first 10-win season, regular season, that the school has ever had. So you can't question his toughness, his competitiveness, and the fact that he's a winner. No, and I like the way you put that, Todd. You're not saying anybody's falling with, with draft status just that they had a disappointing bowl game. That's fair. Uh, take a look now at Todd's updated 2022 uh, rankings. We'll see plenty of these to come, but this is where we stand right now. Hutchinson, as he mentioned, currently at the top spot. Remains to be seen, though, uh, if that bowl game performance will change things. Alabama and Georgia have three players in Todd's top ten, led by Todd, tied offensive tackle Evan Neal at three. Uh, Lugs and Dusty are back with us. Listen, similar question for you. Uh, Lugs, who, who stood out during this bowl season? Who do you feel like had a stellar performance? Well, I would look at a, a position group, and that would be Ohio State's wide receiving core. We've we got to remember that from the opt-outs opt perspective, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson both decide not to play. So what happens? A freshman, Marvin Harrison Jr., shows up. Next thing you know, Julian Fleming shows up. Next thing you know, uh, Amika Egbuka shows up Jackson Smith and Jigba and there was no drop off I think that's what we've got to acknowledge it's a it's a prime reminder of why five or six teams in major college football right now are head and shoulders above the rest because when a difference maker goes off the field a difference maker's coming on and it really doesn't matter what year they are in so really impressed with the the wide receiving core at Ohio State and then I think Wandell Robinson you know came into the bowl game with 94 catches in the Citrus Bowl really was the hero in the second half in, in their win versus Iowa. You talk about an explosive, sudden difference maker in space. He, I think he's got tremendous upside as a route runner. Soft hands, quick plucker. Now, he's not a big target, but what he will do and what he did in the bowl game is he wows you over the middle of the field. There's no fear with God, this guy. He extends. He will reach out in traffic. I just think he's one of those guys that if you get the ball in his hands, a five-yard catch could turn into an 80-yard touchdown.
Tell it with you, Luz. We did that game. He was outstanding. Yeah. Let's go back to the Fiesta Bowl. We had Todd talk about Tay Martin, but who was delivering the football? It was Spencer Sanders. And, man, he struggled mightily in the Big 12 championship with four interceptions. He was unbelievable in this game. 496 total yards, 371 through the air. Never really put the ball in harm's way. Played with supreme confidence. And then he tacked out 125 yards on the ground. Dare I say he made that Irish defense look slow. Marcus Freeman did not have an answer. Spencer Sanders ended the season on such a high note. Big optimism for next year. And then how about the Music City Bowl? May have been one of the better bowl games we saw between Tennessee and Purdue. But it's no David Bell. He opted out. You know who opted in? Brock Thompson and Payne Durham. When someone opts out, there's an opportunity there for someone else. And these two guys were fantastic. They combined for over 300 yards and four touchdowns. Aiden O'Connell threw for over 500 and five touchdowns because of these two guys. And Payne Durham, an outstanding tight end. Tennessee clearly could not tackle him. And Brock Thompson really made the most out of his opportunity. I love it when guys get a chance to make a name for themselves. And these two guys in that bowl game did just that. And then my final game, uh, we talk about Clemson cornerback Mario Goodrich. And this was a game that Lugs and I had as well as they took down Iowa State. And it was about the two big plays that he made in that game. Had a pick six that was the difference. It was kind of a fluky, crazy play. But then the game winner here, fourth down. See him punch it out there like a little peanut punch. Knocks it loose. Ball comes back. And Clemson <laughs> gets the win. It was all about the defense. And for a senior that waited his turn, made the most of it, had a great season, capped it off with a big bowl game. Now he gets to go to Mobile and see exactly what his draft prospects look like. But those guys, man, to me, really stepped up and made the most out of the postseason bowl games. Listen, Dusty, you took the words right out of my mouth. We talk so much about these, these star players who opt out, and I get it. It's an issue. But when they do, there's a tremendous opportunity for some of these other players, and it's so much fun to see them step up and make the most of it. That's the good news uh, when you're talking about that. Still to come on College Football Live, he's the leader of this vaunted Georgia defense. But Marty Smith will tell us how Jordan Davis's unique life experience has led him straight to the football field. That's all next on College Football Live. Holy cow, how good is Georgia's defense? They've got like 105 star football players on their defense. Those beasts that Georgia has on their team. The Kobe Dean, Lewis C. Channing Tindall, Trayvon Walker, Jordan Davis. They have a defensive lineman that weighs 340 pounds and runs better than everybody on this call. It's a safety. It's off the hands of Harris and intercepted. Pick six written all over it. They've got five star defensive backs. They're big and physical and fast. I mean, other than that, they're really freaking good. Adding Will Muschamp to that defensive staff ought to be illegal. That's why they have the top defense in the country. Five-star recruits everywhere, and they play really physical. Damn. you got to love Shane Beamer's take. Here's Marty Smith now with a look at the leader on Georgia's defensive line, Jordan Davis. Needless to say, this squad has been pretty solid. My mom, that's my angel. We pray for every game. It just became one of those things that, you know, like I feel like I don't have a great game if, you know, we don't. She always called me the, the chosen one. 
that's something that has always been in our vocabulary when I talk to him, like you are the chosen one. You're destined for greatness. Georgia defensive tackle Jordan Davis is one of the most imposing players in college football. Crouching in the center of the number one defense in the nation, you can't help but notice his presence. But growing up in Charlotte, North Carolina, he had no interest in football. He was a sweet kid. Like, he was very mild, very quiet. I threw him into soccer. That was interesting because he was the biggest kid, and he ran over the little kid, so they put him in the goalie. And one time he blocked the ball, and it hit a kid in the face, and it was, like, really bad. So we stopped soccer. Basketball. Basketball was always my first love. I always have love for the game. He always fouled out because kids run into him, and of course they bounce off. I had to have part-time jobs, and he would just eat me out of house and home. So we had to find him something to do. Entering his sophomore year of high school, Davis changed schools. Immediately, those around the football program noticed him. I didn't want to play football. I was kind of apprehensive about it. My mom eventually pushed me into it. I didn't have a choice. We was eating breakfast. She was like, put some clothes on, we're going to take a ride in the car. So I took a ride in the car, and then she drove me to the Mallet Creek practice field, and then she dropped me off. She was like, you got to get out. I was like, all right, you know, I'll get out. I think she's going to park somewhere. I walk out, turns around, and drives off. And I'm like, all right, maybe this is like, you know, like some, some type of joke. And uh, she, she just leaves. He just popped up at practice one day. It wasn't a, you know, an easy start for him. He didn't like football at all. I used to skip weightlifting classes and uh, I would go sit in the bathroom. I used to avoid it. I used to hate it. Before I knew it, I was on a football team. I didn't have a pair of cleats. I had to go to get some cleats. He was so much bigger than everybody. He could just blow off the ball. It just really looked like he was a man amongst boys at that time. He was really raw, just potential out the wazoo. I think it gave him an identity because I think he finally found something that he has control of. I found that love of football and I was like, I could really go far with it. That was really in my mind when I was like, okay, like this is this could be a future. Jordan Davis, big body in the middle for the Bulldogs. Oh my goodness, Jordan Davis with the safety. They don't make guys like this all over the world. Ah, let's do it! I've coached 25 years now, and don't know that I've seen a person that big, that athletic. The combination of size, speed, uh, vertical jump, leaping ability, he's, he's rare. For four seasons at Georgia, Davis has shoved around opposing offenses. It all goes back to that fateful day. His mother shoved him out the car door at football practice. We laugh about it, joke about it, but, you know, deep down, like, realizing, you know, that was one of those, like, instrumental stuffs in my life that I needed. The mother's intuition and the mother's push, you know, she saw something that I didn't see at the time. back here on College Football Live. It wouldn't be College Football Live without a few technical difficulties. It's just like we like to roll that way. Uh, Dusty, let me ask you one more time. Uh, we know Georgia's defense will have to do things a little bit differently the second time around against Alabama. What do you need to see this time that will change the outcome Monday night? 
Well, when he hit the nail on the head before we went to break, they got to get Bryce Young on the ground. They've got to sack him. They've got to affect him. Now, look, he is so slippery, and he can evade pressure as well as anybody. But the reality is, against LSU, against Auburn, Bryce Young in 39 dropbacks when he was pressured only had nine completions, one touchdown, one interception. He was sacked 10 times. This Georgia front is too talented not to get home, especially against a banged-up offensive line. Look, you heard Todd earlier talk about N'Kobe Dean. Yes, he's an excellent blitzer. I want to see the guys that rush every time. Nolan Smith can impact this game. Trayvon Walker can impact this game. And I think Jalen Carter is one of the best interior rushers in all of college football. Whenever the dogs pin their ears back and come to get Bryce Young, they got to get him to the ground in this national championship game. Yeah, and I think a big difference has got to be up the middle, as you kind of alluded to. Yes, N'Kobe Dean is great rushing the quarterback. He's so slippery, but they've got to do it with the interior guys. That's the fastest way to get to Bryce Young with a lot of those quick throws. Jordan Davis is phenomenal versus the run, but he's started to peter out and get tired as the season has progressed. He's got to have the game of his life. If it's not getting to Bryce Young, it's at least moving him off the spot, getting arms up and affecting the, the passing windows. Devontae Wyatt is a Another guy who, who had a, who's had a really good season, he's got to get pressure from the interior. And the other thing is with Trayvon Walker, you mentioned him, I think he's one of the most underrated players in the country. He had some success at least getting near Bryce Young and affecting him from the edges. I want to see when they reduce him on the inside. And, you know, obvious third downs when Jordan Davis comes off the field, can he get pressure from the interior where he has a little bit more quickness and power rather than size? I think that's going to be so critical in this game. Can they get pressure up front in the middle and get in front of Bryce Young, who's a shorter quarterback. Well, they're going to have to do it with five or more, Todd, because he completed 17 of 23 passes against Georgia when they rushed four or less. <laughs> I think there's two other areas that are really important here, and that is handling the slot receiver. All right, the first time around, coverage-wise for Georgia, they, re- they, they allowed 12 catches for 231 yards from the slot. Secondly, that bunch trips look, the bunch trips look that that Alabama likes to run created all kinds of problems and created some of those zone busts. So whether it's a personnel decision and Kirby Smart decides, hey, we got to get a different guy on the inside, whether it's rerouting that slot receiver and not allowing a free release or just lining up and saying, you know what, we're going to play mano a mano and put somebody behind him. That has to change without question. And if you combine what Dusty was talking about, Todd, what you're talking about, all of those things, I think, have to do with simplification. Sometimes uh, simple is the best way, guys. You know that. We talk about paralysis by, anal- uh, paralysis by analysis, as they say. Uh, listen, a group of college football power brokers are going to get together on Saturday. Stop me if you've heard this before, but there is still considerable debate about playoff expansion. We clearly have a four-team format right now. The question is when to expand and then, of course, how many. Uh, this group will meet in Indianapolis to continue the discussions. Now, take a look at this. If a 12-team bracket were in place this season, the top four teams would have all received buys. That's how it would work to the next round. Seven other teams would have had a chance to play for a national championship. One matchup was we saw in the Rose Bowl with Ohio State against Utah. But would we have seen Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave? Because, again, some of these players, these star players, are making what they call business decisions to opt out of these bowl games. And, and there's a lot of reasons why you can understand that, Todd. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about playoff expansion, what you think would happen, uh, and if and when we'll see it. 
there's going to be a devaluing of the other bowl games. Doesn't matter if it's New, Year, New, Year, New Year's Six or some of the other bigger bowl games. There's not the same interest from the fans, and there's not the same interest from some of the top prospects. And I can understand it. Listen, if you're looking at an opportunity like Chris Olave or Garrett Wilson, the wide receivers from, from Ohio State, you're saying, well, if, if I go play and get injured, I can lose five, seven, ten million dollars on my rookie contract. Look at the notable opt-outs that we had. Eight players that are in my top 100 for the 2022 NFL Draft decided to opt out in the teams that were ranked between 5 and 12 this year. You see Kyle Hamilton was also dealing with injury. The two wide receivers from Ohio State. Kenny Pickett, the number one quarterback in this year's class from Pitt. Ohio State had two other opt-outs as well. Kenneth Walker, one of the best running backs in all of college football this season for Michigan State. And Kyron Williams, the other running back that would be on this list, also in my top 100 overall from Notre Dame. So we lose out on an opportunity to see some of the great players in college football finish their careers because there's not that importance that we had at one point on the late bowl games that aren't included in those semifinals. There's no question we've devalued the bowl system uh, with this and how players view the bowl system. But I'm not so sure if you increased the expansion of it to 12 teams, 18s, what have you, if you wouldn't have more opt-outs. Because now if we've got guys opting out and choosing not to play in one game, What's going to happen when you're going to ask some of those high-profile guys to maybe have to play in three? Especially if in their mind, if they're the 11th seed and they're sitting there going, do we really have a chance to win a national championship? Is this in my best interest? So I think on the surface it looks like, okay, well, if the games were more meaningful and you told each and every one of these teams that were in the top 12 that they'd have an opportunity to play for a national championship, everybody would play. I'm not so sure when you consider how many more games you'd have to play. Well, I hope you're wrong, Tom, because, look, I think expansion, it's inevitable. It just matters of when it's going to happen. Is it two years from now? Is it four years from now? That's what I think Saturday is going to tell us. But I think expansion is coming. And here's why I think it should come. All the things you said, I think it does incentivize these players to want to play in these games. I'm one that loves conference championships. I think you win your conference and the Power Five, you should have a chance to dance and have a chance to play for a national championship. And I want college football, the better growth, the health of it, I want it to be more all-encompassing. All sections of the country to matter and be engaged. I think it creates more meaningful games. It allows better access to all sections of the country. I really don't see who loses in this scenario. Do you see those games we just put up there? Those were fantastic matchups that we would get with still a chance to keep your season alive. I'm all for it. I think college football is all for it. The real question for me is what exactly does the structure look like and when does it start? Not necessarily is it coming or not. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's inevitable at this point. And, you know, the Rose Bowl did everything for people to point and say, hey, that's what we're going to get. That's what we'll see more of <laughs> if we expand these playoffs. And that, that, of course, if you're a college football fan, is a good thing. If you're a fan of Oklahoma, well, it's not been such a good thing in terms of the offseason. So many uh, sort of comings and goings and all kind of stuff. We'll talk about the loss of Lincoln Riley, potentially Caleb Williams. A Dusty checks in from Oklahoma coming up next. Oklahoma quarterback Caleb Williams announced via Twitter earlier this week that he's entering the transfer portal, but he will keep the Sooners as an option. Williams passed for just over 1,900 yards and 21 touchdowns with just four interceptions after replacing Spencer Rattler as the Sooners starter this season. 
Well, Dusty, listen, it, it's been a wild ride for these Sooners and uh, an interesting situation here because when you enter the portal, of course, the team can take away your scholarship. But so far, Caleb Williams has yet to officially make a decision. I mean, what do you make of all that's happened in Norman this offseason? It's been a roller coaster, Wendy. I mean, it's been wild from Lincoln Riley leaving to Brent Venables coming in. Now, Caleb, Bob Stoops coaching in the bowl game. And now Caleb Williams, Mario Williams, <laughs> they leave. And, and look, I, I think Caleb Williams, he's a phenomenal talent. And, you know, he came to Oklahoma to play for Lincoln Riley to get himself prepared for the NFL, wanted to play in his system. And when Lincoln Riley left, that changed. I think this decision is about where he feels most comfortable to develop. And I think it's about NIL money. I think let's not get it twisted. I think that his father and his camp, Carl Williams, are very closely tied to this. And they want what's best for him monetarily and what's going to put him in the best position to be the number one overall pick. That is the game plan. So, you know, as Oklahoma did three hours after he announced that he's leaving, they went and they brought in Dylan Gabriel, a guy who's played for Jeff Levy uh, at UCF and had a ton of success at the college level. So Oklahoma isn't going to stand by and say, well, we're just going to wait on your decision. They had to act and act swiftly. They're very prideful. They feel like, hey, this is Oklahoma. We don't have to wait for anybody. And we'll just see ultimately where Caleb Williams winds up. But Oklahoma, I think they've fully got a contingency plan, Tom, and they're expecting to move on without him. Yeah, and I love the plan. In fact, I love how quickly it happened because it sends a message, and not just to Caleb Williams, but it would send a message to everybody in the transfer portal. Listen, we're not going to wait for you to make that decision. So I love that part of it. My question is, because I think you're on to something here with the name, image, and likeness part of it, because if he does end up at USC, and for as good a coach as Lincoln Riley is and the staff that they've put together, USC's roster right now isn't even in the same area code as Oklahoma's roster. So it wouldn't necessarily be about winning a conference championship or having the chance to win a national championship. I think that would reveal where the NIL side of this uh, could emerge. I wish him nothing but the best. If you remember, you and I had him in the first week of the season. He had not played yet. And I felt firmly at that time, I said, when he gets his chance, he'll be a three-and-out first-round draft choice. I still believe that regardless of where he ends up. But, man, uh, I, I, th I hope he shops around and looks at more than just NIL in this particular situation. Yeah, and for Brent Venables, it's really about bringing that family atmosphere from Clemson to Oklahoma. And I know I'm kind of shifting gears, and Dylan Gabriel is a great addition, the familiarity that he has on offense. But ultimately, this is going to be a little bit of a rebuild because you're going from an offensive-minded program and head coach to a defensive-minded program and a head coach. And, and the reason why Venables, who got several head coaching opportunities over the last few years, stuck with Clemson is because he loved Dabo Sweeney, he loved the family environment and he, he wanted to be a part of that but now he wants to bring it in as a head coach to Oklahoma so we may see a year where Oklahoma doesn't meet expectations but I fully believe between the recruiting and the environment that Venables creates here in Oklahoma that they're going to be right up near the top of college football once again very soon and it's not necessarily dictated on personnel even though so much of it will have to do with that and they will recruit well but I think that they're going to try to have that environment that was so successful and has been for Clemson and bring that to Norman. 
Yeah, the proof is in the pudding on that one, Todd. There's no question. And you can't blame Oklahoma. As odd as the timing was, Dusty, to your point, you can't hamstring a whole program. Caleb Williams has the right to enter the portal, but you can't expect the Sooners to sit around and wait and see. Uh, it just yep. doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Uh, we are all about to make our way to Indianapolis, Indiana. All eyes will be on the College Football National Championship Monday night, College Football Live. Uh, we'll have plenty of presents live from Indy tomorrow for our show to get you ready for the weekend, to get you ready for the game. Big question coming in, how would Alabama beat having lost a lot of players off the national championship team? There goes Jamison Williams. Alabama picking right up where it left off last year. Bryce Young. I mean, what an unbelievable start. The kid can absolutely slang it. You can stop us. You can stop us. You can stop us. You can put that on. Everybody said Bama's vulnerable. And the fight, Texas Aggies take down the top-ranked Tide. The key thing is to respond the right way. One play, one magical moment. This defense is firing off every which way. Yeah, we are rock stars. Yeah, we are all stars. We're the game in the game. Yeah, we're going to raise a ball. What a throw. What a catch. And Alabama wins in four overtimes. You're asking me a team I don't want to play. I don't want to play Alabama. Alabama is the team to beat in these situations. You can stop us. You can stop us. You can stop us. You can put that Alabama has again done the job. The committee came out of there with a strong consensus that Alabama was one. Throw deep. Open receiver. Touchdown, Alabama. Better drop for a loss. We just warriors, man. We fight to the end with everything we do, man. That's why we're going to win tonight and repeat. You can stop us. You can put that Oh boy, here we come. Monday, number three Georgia faces number one Alabama. Kick off at 8 o'clock Eastern on ESPN. It's the College Football Playoff Championship presented by AT&T at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. We'll certainly be there. Looking forward to it. And tomorrow on College Football Live, we'll have live reports. The teams are set to arrive in Indy on Friday. And we really get set to take you all the way up until game time. Monday night again, kickoff 8 o'clock Eastern. Listen, uh, Dusty, I'm going to start with you. As a player, uh, you know this all too well. Win or lose, Monday night will stay with these guys for a long time. Oh, no question. Look, I still remember we lost to Nick Saban. We won his first LSU, Oklahoma, 17 years ago uh, down there in New Orleans. I still hate confetti to this day because as I was limping off the field, there was confetti <laughs> everywhere, and I can't get it out of my mind. But, look, I think it's smart that they're bringing the players in later. When we played in that national championship against them uh, in, in the 2004 title, we were there for eight days. It was too long, too much distraction. Smart. These players are going to get there, be focused, and you're right, Wendy. Monday night? They're going to remember that for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and Luke's the mindset shifts, right? I think Dusty's yeah. got a good point. There's so many distractions. So the longer you wait to get there, you know, the hotel is different. There's media there. It's, it's so different uh, that perhaps waiting until Friday uh, is really a positive thing for these guys. There, there's no doubt about it. And to be honest with you, I go back to the comments Nick Saban said leading up to the college football 
uh, playoff semifinal when, he's, when the guys decided they weren't going to leave the hotel. And he said, well, what are you going to remember? The Wednesday night that you left the hotel or when you beat somebody in the semifinal to play for a national championship? Ten years from now, that's an easy choice to look back on, and that's why you don't spend seven, eight days leading up to this game. Yeah, and yeah, Lewis, I, I look at this from Georgia's any... perspective. Yeah, I was just going to say, I look at this from Georgia's perspective. How many times in life do you get an opportunity after you play your worst game in the biggest game to all of a sudden go and get a rematch? Now you get to, you're laying, you know, laying in bed at night thinking, well, all the little things that I did wrong in that first game, I can go and, and make up for it in the national championship, and no one's going to remember that SEC championship game. And you look at the past in college football back to 1936, only four other times have we seen a rematch of top five teams, and not, none of it has gone the way that it went the first time. So Georgia has got a great opportunity.